you know, confidence is such a goofy thing in bow hunting. It's like, if in my head, while I'm approaching that moment of truth, I am thinking, you're dead, I have you, you know? It usually works out exactly like that. When I get that extra pressure or have too much time to think about it or stuff like that, that's when I find myself sometimes thinking, don't screw this up, don't mm -hmm. screw this up. And when you go to that frame of mind versus your mind, that's when things melt down. Decoying, by and large, is best done during the rut, during the breeding season of whatever species that you're after. That's when decoying really gets hot. Now, decoys can I be agree. used effectively during other parts of the season. However, the things that you get away with during that rut phase you're not going to get away with the same things during the early season when they're in velvet or in the late season when they're coming into food necessarily. When I try and force it at the moment of truth like that, you know, but like when that panic button gets pushed, whenever I feel like, oh, I gotta shoot him now, I gotta shoot him now, that's when bad things happen. And a lot of times, if you'll just slow down look at the animal and try and determine whether the animal is is about to run or if it's you know what it's doing it's going to give you clues when i first started using these decoys i thought that i needed to do everything right in that shooting window i needed to be completely hidden behind the decoy and i needed to range through that shooting window and everything and my experience has been that 99 percent of the time i don't need to i can peek out from behind that thing mm -hmm. As long as the, the head of the decoy is higher than my head, mm -hmm. it's like they're focused on the silhouette of the face of that thing. Hey guys, welcome to Days of the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast. I want to take a minute to introduce you to a new organization called Howl for Wildlife. Howl was grown out of the necessity to have a fast acting tool to focus the sportsman's voice on issues concerning wildlife management and hunting. It's Howell's goal to shut down any initiative that doesn't support sound management practices before it even makes it to the ballot, and certainly before it reaches the court. I know I sound like a broken record, but we need to start looking at hunting as a community and not just an individual sport. And that means supporting all hunting, whether we engage in duck hunting or predator hunting or anything in between. We are all in this for different reasons, and unfortunately it's this difference that will be our undoing if we let it. So we need to come together as one pack and let our diversity be our strength. We are a strong force if we band together, one voice, one howl. I want you to go to howlforwildlife.org, that's H-O-W-L for wildlife.org, and join there. There's no cost to you to becoming a member. Howl operates solely on donations, so it's completely up to you if you decide you want to send money or not. There'll be no annoying emails, no newsletter advertisements or money grabs or anything like that. No drives. Signing up as a member just means that when there's an issue concerning wildlife management like this attempt on banning mountain lion hunting and bear hunting in Arizona, you will be called to stand with us and let your voice be heard. So get out there, get on Howlful Wildlife, become a member, and join the pack. Thank you. Let's jump into this episode. Anything that you that you do for money eventually turns into work. And it, it's yeah, you trade 
you trade one for the other. But it is tough, dude. Like whenever you're dealing with something where you've got a limited amount of money for the whatever time you're selling, whether mm -hmm. you're selling that time cleaning a pool or doing a computer, if you if it requires some manual stuff out of you, then unless you're willing to really take on a bunch of employees and shit like that, which is a completely separate headache, then yeah. there's only so much you there's only so much of you to go around. There's only right. so much to make. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Well, yeah, that's, you know, you're, I've thought about that too, just getting rid of all the employees and just having one, you know, cause hell, I can make so much more money if I was doing like a fourth of the police pools and just doing it by myself, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah. and just yeah. fire everybody and then not have to deal with that. But then you, you know, then I'm trading my time. Right. So the reason why I'm able to That's go, exactly right. Reason why I'm able to go hunting as often as I do and been, you know, have such a flexible schedule and be around for my kids all the time and so on and so forth is because I have it, you know, set up well that I can. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a double edged sword, man. It's like anything else; you always got to yeah. give up something to gain something, and it's it's, yeah, uh, it's exactly frustrating. Right? Frustrating. So I just need to win the lottery. Exactly. That's it, right? Yeah, that's just be uh, dude, independently be... rich, and um, I won't have any problems with you know financially or work work things anyway. <laughs> Yeah, you know so. whose fault it is. It's your it's your relative's fault. One of your relatives should have had the foresight to get rich and pass that money down to you. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Know? I'm first generation American. <laughs> my my parents my parents are immigrants. They had a claw and fight to get to you know yeah. wherever they're at today, no, which is not very <laughs> not really my my dad's in his late seventies and he should have never retired. Like like he just retired like a couple of years ago. And uh, I think it's this, I think this well, will be th year three, and really he should have probably worked true. for another five years, unfortunately. But my, my mom's still working, which is you know. Anyway, so well, right on. Well, um, yeah. So I, what I want to do is, um, you know, talk about some situational. I got Danny Ferris on with us. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, using uh, decoys for, you know, hunting, maybe specifically deer, but turkey season's coming up. So maybe get a couple of uh, tips on how to, how to use uh, the bow mounted turkey decoy. I haven't tried that one right yet. Right on. So uh, I'm Danny Ferris. I've got four kids and a wife and. I live in Colorado and scratch and claw to make a living and I'm a pretty, uh, pretty normal dude, but I've gotten to do some pretty cool stuff over my career. I'm a columnist for Bowhunter magazine. I'm the host for Hoyt Archery's uh, podcast and uh, uh, basically a, one of the co-hosts on Bowhunter TV and, you know, just a regional director for the Colorado Bowhunters Association. So my life is, is, squarely i i do a lot of things related to bow hunting but like you and i were just talking about john you <laughs> get you get people who talk to you and think that it's all peaches and cream and 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 gravy and it doesn't matter what you do you got to work hard at it you know oh, yeah. and and some of it eventually turns into work it's not like i'm you know going out and hunting every day right there's 
you know, whether it comes to the decoy business or, or writing or anything else, there, there's, there's a lot of work involved, man. Right. Um, exactly. And if you're, if you're going to do well at whatever it is that you want to do, you you got to be ready to put your nose to the grindstone. Yeah. For a long time on my blog, the number one question I would get is how do I get into the hunting industry? How do I make money in the yes. industry? And I was always telling people, I, was like, I came up with this thing. I'm like, listen, making money in the hunting industry is tough. You got to like, you know, when yeah. I had the TV show and all that stuff, man, how oh, that was, I'm actually so glad. I mean, I miss the filming part and I miss creating, you know, film and, and shows and stuff like that. But I don't miss the business part of that. Oh my God. That was a nightmare. No. It was an absolute nightmare. It's a terrible business model. You're always got your hand out and you're begging for money in every which way, shape, or form. And but I would always tell people, I'm like, listen, if you want to get into the hunting industry so you can hunt more, that's not what you need to do. You need to find a job that pays you well and gives you a lot of time off and a lot of free time. That's that's the only way you can do or or what I was doing or what I'm doing with the case, you know, you're asking me because you it, it, on at face value, it looks like, a, and I, and a, believe me, I spend a lot of time in the field, but much, you know, much more than most people do. And, yeah. but if you want to be that guy that spends 90 days out, out in the field a year, you need, you know, you need to make you a good living. Your life up right. Exactly. It's yeah. about setting the life up. Right. And, you know, that's, yep. that's what was my goal from, my early twenties was to set myself up in that, you know, fashion, and uh, and I did, and you know, so I have I have that ability, and um, yeah. but uh, making money in the hunting industry is like, you know, I I tell people all the time, I'm like, yeah, I take in you know seventy thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars, and then I spend you know eighty five, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It, it's not, it's exactly not right. It's hard to hard yeah. to break into the black. Yep. It really is. It's not a. It's not easy. And I, I you, what what you just said, I I can't agree with more. You know, um, I've got four kids, and two of my boys are pretty ate up with bow hunting. Um, nice. And my daughter is too, but you know, not to the point where she wants to figure out uh, a way to to really do this. And you know, one of my sons in particular, you know, he's got he's got the bug as bad as anyone I've ever seen. And, you know, he's, he, he just graduated from college and he's trying to make some decisions just like you were talking about, you know, what, Hey, do I, do I try and find a job in, in the hunting industry or do I uh, go out and do something else? And I tell him the exact same thing that you just said, I, you know, I, I think that your, your best route is to find a way to, to make good money that gives you some time off that is outside of the hunting industry. And, you know, if you want to create some, uh, uh, some content based on your adventures for, for personal use, and it ends up being something that people enjoy you sharing, then, then go ahead and share it, you know, and right. see if you can find a way to monetize it later on down the line. But, uh, you know, for right now, the best way to have fun doing it is for it not to be, something that your your financial well-being hinges on <laughs> you exactly because I mean? then you know you're just adding all that stress i mean oh dude i can't i i can't tell you when when you know that you've got to have something work out out in the field 
mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's amazing sometimes how much pressure the, having that camera behind you can put on you, especially when it really needs to work out for, and, and there's consequences behind it. If it doesn't, you yep. know, yep. It, it, it is, it, it's a, it's a hard thing to deal with sometimes. You know, early on, I don't know if you experienced this, I'm sure you did, but early on, like early 2000s, some of our contracts said you had to have X amount of kill shots and X amount of, like, I was like, yeah, that's ridiculous. You know, you're like really, you know, expecting (laughs) that. I mean, that was, that was, that was tough back then. And then you wonder why people do crazy things, you know, to, to succeed you always hear these stories out there but um yeah i don't know i i actually i kind of like i like the pressure of the camera i always felt like i was a i'm always a better hunter when i have other people watching i don't know what it is interesting i feel like i have to rise to the occasion maybe i don't know i don't know what the case may be i don't like any extra pressure that i don't already have and that i don't already put on myself yeah you know and i i've had conversations with guys you know if you bow hunted long enough you've had things go bad oh yeah where you screwed situations up whether it's a miss or whether it's you know morning yeah you, you made the wrong move at the wrong time whatever it is but i you know confidence is such a goofy thing in bow hunting oh my god yeah it's like if in my head while i'm approaching that moment of truth i am thinking you're dead i have you you know yeah um it usually works out exactly like that when i get that extra pressure or have too much time to think about it or stuff like that that's when i find myself sometimes thinking don't screw this up don't Mm -hmm. screw this up and when you go to that frame of mind versus your mind yeah that's when things melt down <laughs> yeah that's that's I, when the panic button gets pushed i could see that i could see that no for sure anyhow we're getting yeah we're getting way off no but yeah off, hey right? i mean people Easy some people do. like to hear this stuff you know because they're they're thinking yeah. it it's good to talk people off a ledge you know <laughs> yeah but, yep for sure um for yeah sure, so sure. let's uh let's talk a little bit about uh decoy hunting man i for me and i want to see what your philosophy is it might be a little different since you own a company that makes decoys well and i've i've been a man i've i've been a decoy geek for a very very long time Mm -hmm. i mean going back going back to you know when i first started bow hunting and first tried a Mel Dutton decoy for antelope. That was probably the first one I ever used. Mm. And, uh, and I learned a, a ton about decoying way before this, the opportunity to, to own this company ever came around. You know, I kind of fell into it because I had found a product, you know, that I really like these stalker decoys that we sell. And I found, you know, I found that product and, and basically started doing some things that uh, uh, I, I had never been able to do before. And it used to be owned by a, a pair of guys. And when their partnership started breaking down mm-hmm. and they told me they were going to be selling it, I was like, dude, this is an under-marketed product that works very well. 
And if you can get it out there in front of people and get people to try it, they're going to sell themselves. And I bought the company because of that. Right. Um, so anyway, give me, you know, your philosophy and, and I'll, I'll kind of tell you what, you know, where I come, what my thoughts are on the, on the same stuff. Well, so for me, I think decoys are very, I think where people go wrong with them is that they don't realize that they're very situational. Very and, and, true. And you, you have to recognize the situation. And, and furthermore, and I want you to describe this to me later, but it's about setup. When I mean setup, like I, I view, I don't know, I guess maybe I view it through the eyes of a, of a predator hunter a lot of times. You know, because people always wonder why, hey, how are you so successful at bow hunting coyotes and stuff like that? I'm like, well, it's about the setup. It's about setting up in the right spot, necessar- not necessarily what call you're using or how many coyotes are in the area or whatever. It's about how you're bringing that coyote into, you know. So I look at all right. that stuff. In a, in a, and so I have certain philosophies about decoying. So I want to hear what your, you know, maybe what you think people should look for in a situation like, Hey, this is the time to break out the decoy. This is, you know, well, you know, first off I would say decoying by and large is best done during the rut, during the breeding season of whatever species that you're after. That's when decoying really gets hot. Now decoys can be used effectively during other parts of the season However, you know, the things that you get away with during that rut phase, you're not going to get away with the same things during the early season when they're in velvet or in the late season when they're coming into uh, food necessarily. Those hormonal changes that happen during the rut is what allows you to get away with a lot of what you get away with with a decoy. And you've got to understand those different phases. So, for instance, if we're talking about mule deer and you're hunting them during the velvet phase in September or something like that, mm-hmm. you're not going to flash in most situations. Now, there's always a lot of anomalies where something weird happens. You know what I mean? However, for the most part, you're not going to flash a decoy from 150 yards away at a, at, at a buck in velvet and have him come to you. You know what I mean? Um, your decoy more or less, you know, when people are hunting them in that phase, I, if they're going to use a decoy, I tell them hunt the animal exactly like you would if you didn't have the decoy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And whether, you know, I use a bow mounted decoy, our decoys are called stalker decoys. And the big problem that they eliminate basically is that, you know, whenever I used to use a Maldutton decoy or a Montana decoy or, a, you know, any other kind of decoy over the years that you used from the ground for spotting and stalking type pur- purposes, mm-hmm. uh, you always ran into a dilemma when it was the moment of truth. You had to either stick that decoy in the ground or lay the decoy down or do something with it to to be hands free. If you right. had a buddy in front of you holding it, you were fine. Yep, but that, if you were by yourself, I do the buddy. I do the buddy method. <laughs> 
yeah, at, at the moment of truth, you got to do something with that dang decoy so that you can draw and shoot. Well, the, the bow mounted decoys, you know, I started, I started using somebody else's decoy and cutting them up and mounting them to my bow a long time ago. And when this stalker decoy came out, I saw it and I was like, holy crap, that's, that's what I've been doing for all this time with these other decoys. And long story short, when I'm using a decoy, it's usually mounted to my bow. Mm -hmm. Now, what I, like I said, what I tell people is hunt that deer in the velvet, just like you would if you didn't have the decoy on. If you're able to stalk into bow range mm-hmm. and draw back, reveal yourself, draw back, reveal yourself, put the pins on him and take the shot, and he never sees you, fantastic. You know what I mean? Right. But what that decoy during that phase is primarily for is or in that situation where you get caught drawing your bow, or when you reveal yourself to try and make that shot, the deer catches some kind of movement and looks over their shoulder. When they look up and they see another deer, Uh it gives them pause. Even if they don't buy it, it gives them a lot of pause. Right. And it, you know, sometimes depending upon how fooled the deer is that deer might just go back to what he's doing. If he's really fooled, if he's not so fooled, he he might look at you. He might run off five yards and stop and give you the, the, the additional time to make a shot. The other things that they can be used for during that time is like you start that stock at 400 yards away or something like that. You get to 250 and now you've got an open gap Mm -hmm. where you you have to get across this open gap. There's no cover. And in most situations, if you don't have a decoy, you're going to stop right there and you're not going to even try. You know what I mean? Well, if you've got plenty of days to go, then no problem. Back out and wait for another time. However, most of us don't have plenty of time like that. You've got, you know, two or three days that you're out there and maybe this is the first shooter buck that you've seen. I want to be able to try something. And a lot of times that decoy, especially from a distance like that, will let you get across an opening where they might see you, but they write you off as another deer as long as you're smart about how you use it and the movements that you make. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I've, I've had customers that call me up and I had a guy from Arkansas a year ago, a couple of years ago that called me and he heard, he wrote us a nasty email and oh, said something along the lines that I've, I've just spooked my, you know, fifth deer in a row with these things. They don't work. And and he was hunting early season whitetails. And, and you know, I kind of asked him what he was doing. And he says, well, I, you know, I start out at 200, 300, 200 yards. And by the time I get to, you know, 75, they're running. <laughs> and it, it's like, well, yeah, dude, if, if you take that decoy and you put it on your buddy across the football field, and you tell him, hold that decoy up in front of you and just start walking at me. Well, watch him for a few minutes. And how long does it take for you to figure out that's not a deer? You know, right. that doesn't work. It, but if your buddy goes over there and he's got just a little bit of cover for his lower body and all you're seeing is the top half of the decoy. And every time you look over at him, he stops and maybe lowers the head a little bit and pops it back up. 
and then waits for you to go back to what you were doing. And then he moves a little bit further and you look over again and all you're seeing is the top half of that decoy. Well, yeah, in that situation, it's easy to mistake that decoy for an actual deer mm -hmm. because you're not seeing all that unnatural man-like movement and, you know, the full lower body of, uh, or let's say that you're using a Montana decoy and you got you and another guy, you're watching this animal come at you doing some kind of sideways moonwalk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it, that doesn't work, No, you know? No. So you've got to use just a little bit of common sense with, you know, how you present the decoy to the animal and wait for them to, you know, wait for them to be, to be smart about your movements and use whatever cover you can, even if it's very little, stay, stay low and, you know, wait for that deer to not be focused on you before you make big unnatural movements. Right. No, that's, does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's so, so, you know, that's kinda, makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> that's, that's velvet stage strategy or late season whenever they're not in the rut. Now, when it comes to the rut, everything changes, everything changes. Um, you know, like deciding during the velvet, whether you want to show them a buck or a doe, sometimes I don't think it matters. Sometimes I think that if, uh, if, if you're stalking in on a buck that's in a bachelor group, mm -hmm. sometimes I'd rather have antlers on my, on my deer decoy because they're used to seeing other antlered animals and, and, uh, the, the chances that they will write you off is just another one of the guys are better if you have antlers on it. And, you know, when you get into the rut, you've got the same dilemma. So if we're talking about mule deer, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mule deer and, and your coos deer down there in the Southwest, any mule deer and whitetails in general, right? They rut very differently. Yes. Um, mule deer have a harem of does and they might have a one or two does in that harem that's hot and they defend that group from other bucks, but they do all their breeding right there inside that harem around other does trying to hold them, hold on to them. A whitetail, whether it's a coos or a, or any whitetail, they try to isolate the doe. They don't want a harem of does. They take that hot doe and they chase her out into no man's land away from everybody. And they want to pin her down all by herself and breed her for a day or a day and a half. Right. And then once they're confident that she's been bred thoroughly, he leaves her and goes in search of another hot doe. Yep. Well, so I think primarily we're talking to mule deer hunters right now. If I see a buck during the rut phase that has a group of does and I'm trying to sneak in on him, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to show him a doe from a distance because he's usually got a hot doe in that group right in front of him. Right. And he, most times they don't seem to care if they see a doe from 150 yards off. But if they see a buck from 150 yards off or a distance, and pretty soon they feel like that buck is trying to come in on their group. Mm -hmm. At some point, he wants to come chase you off. It's not like he's not concerned about you. The only time that, I've, that I ever see it where they 
disregard you completely is when there are, two, you know, a couple of other bucks already harassing him and his does. Okay. And, you know, at that point, it, it's kind of like the closest. until you break into his comfort zone, yeah. till you get close enough to where he starts to feel because he doesn't want to go running a long ways off from the does because one of the other bucks will come in and steal one. Right, right. Or, you know, steal his hot dough. Um, and, you know, my, well, the last two muley bucks that I've shot, one of them was a big 200 inch deer. Mm. You know, I, I saw him bedded down with, uh, well, I saw him bed down with three does. He had three does with him. I got the wind right, came over the hill on him with a buck decoy. And he stood up out of his bed at 60 yards and stared at me. And all, all three does just laid there looking. Now, all they could see was the top half of the decoy. Right. And it's just another buck looking at him. And I drew back and put the pin on him at 60 yards and drew with him looking right at me because I've got that bow-mounted decoy that kind of hides that. They're expecting to see some some movement because they think it's a deer. Right. And so you get away with a little bit. And I drew right with him looking at me and I put the pin on him and I was about to squeeze. And I just thought to myself, dude, he's not going anywhere. Wait and see what he does. You know, you might not need to shoot him that far. I let down mm. and he, he stood there for probably 30 seconds and he kind of was looking back and forth at me and the does and he'd lick his lips. Well, after about 30 seconds, he pins his ears back and he comes straight to me and I ended up killing him at 30 yards. Oh, nice. Man, I would have so, never, I would have never, ever, ever, ever had the patience or the foresight to let down. Well, especially not on a big was, one. He was, he was hard quartering at me okay. when he was at 60. Okay. When he stood up out of his bed, he was hard quartering. I'm not usually, you know, I shoot a setup. That I, I feel like most times with deer, uh, I'm not terribly afraid of that quartering shot. But the further away they are, the more afraid of it I am. Yeah, of course. And you know, and it was just one of those things where it was kind of half of me thinking, okay, don't shoot him like that, and then the other half of me thinking, you know, he's not alarmed. I did not, I didn't hit the panic button because there was nothing yeah. about his body language that told me he was going to run. So that's something right there that's very important. And I don't know how this is how we can really address this on a podcast, but right. understanding body language and yes, and recognizing what the deer or elk or whatever it is that you're hunting is, you know, saying to you what they're doing, like where their mind's at. That's a very that, difficult that's an thing. Experience. Yeah, that's an experience. That's, a, that's an experience thing. However, in today's day and age, you can get a you can get a lot of experience just through watching videos of there's so much video content of animals out there. Mm -hmm. You can learn a lot about it, but you got to be concentrating on trying to learn those things while you're watching. Video. Right. And you know the the other thing is, you know, the longer I've done this, the more I find out when I try and force it at the moment of truth like that, you know, but like it, when that panic button gets pushed, mm -hmm. whenever I feel like, oh, I got to shoot him now. I got to shoot him now. That's when bad things happen. And a lot of times, if you'll just slow down, look at the animal and, and try and determine whether that, that animal is 
is about to run or if it's, you know, what it's doing, it's going to give you clues. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure out that when all of a sudden their head goes real high in the air, you know, they're about to run. Yep. You know, you can read it. You can it just it, intuitively you'll you'll know that when their head is lower to the ground and they're not focused directly at you, but they're kind of looking at you, you know, uh, peering up at you. It, it's a it's a completely different body language. So anyway, you know, in that situation, it it, it worked out very well. He came into 30 yards and gave me a, a way better shot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I showed him a buck and he wanted to come. I, I honestly feel like if I'd have showed him a doe right there, he probably wouldn't have left those three does that he was laying with because one of them was hot outdoors. Just right. got done watching him dog dog that doe before they bedded down and another situation where i might want to show a doe is when you see a buck that's all by himself during that rut i got a story for you on that god keep going trotting with his nose to the ground and you know obviously searching for does mm -hmm. now you do want to show him a doe because if he is actively searching for does and you have the wind right you show him a doe, he's going to come your way during yep. that time. And, you know, uh, very different thing than showing, uh, you know, a deer during that velvet phase of decoy. You know, you, you show him a decoy during that phase, show him what he's wanting to see, and he's going to come investigate and sometimes very rapidly. Yeah. I was in South Dakota. Well, I go to South Dakota every year because I guide there, but... I think it was two years ago. And um, I had the doe-mounted decoy, uh, bow-mounted decoy on my bow. Mm -hmm. And I saw this buck kind of, you know, doing that uh, bird-dog trot, but there was no, you know, no does in front of him, no deer in front of him. He was by himself, and he was probably, I don't know, I want to say probably less than 200, more than 150, somewhere between there. And right. I had that little can, the little uh, bleat can in my pocket mm -hmm. also. I hit that yeah. and I just lifted up so you could see the ears behind yep. this berm. And dude, he snapped his head over and he just beelined, trotted, kept the trot straight over to me. And then he hit the brakes. I don't know what I did. I think I might have showed my head or something. I don't know what the hell I did, but he hit the brakes about 60, I don't know, a little less than 60 yards, 58 yards, something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, mm -hmm. I drew back, and all I had was the frontal shot. I actually ended up screwing this up, and I missed I missed them completely because it was super windy that day. I shouldn't have taken the shot. And then you got a sail on your bow. You know, yeah. that's the one one drawback to having a bow mounted decoy is you got to be real, you know, you got to be used to shooting with it. You got to get out there and practice with it a bunch. But think about South right. Dakota, if it's not blowing 20 miles an hour, it's blowing 30. So, um, right. Yeah. I, I kind of, I whiffed it, but had that been a normal situation without the crazy wind, I would have totally got that deer because he just sat there and <laughs> the arrow flew right by him and he, he still didn't even really run off. You know, he just kind of like, like what the hell was that? Yeah. Kind of did what a little turn, and yeah. 
then by the time I loaded another arrow, he decided he wasn't going to stay there any longer. But um, well, I'd, I'd say two different things with that. I mean, I, who knows what made him uh, pause up? You know, it could have been movement. It could have been catching a glimpse of you. It, it's funny because when I first started using these decoys, I thought that I needed to do everything right in that shooting window. I needed to be completely hidden behind the decoy and I needed to range through that shooting window and everything. And my experience has been that 99% of the time I don't need to, I can peek out from behind that thing. Mm -hmm. As long as the, the head of the decoy is higher than my head, mm -hmm. it's like they're focused on the silhouette of the face of that thing. Yeah. So I, I glass them and I range them peeking out right beside it. The only time I'm looking through that shooting window is when I'm actually at full draw trying to put the pins on him and kill him. But, you know, I don't mean to make it sound like it works every time. Deer are smart, and they can get to a certain range, and there might be something about the setup that uh, that alerts them. You mm -hmm. know, it could be the wind making it twist, and it was an unnatural twist or something like that. For the most part, though, you get away with a ton of movement because they're expecting to see it. Right. But, uh, you know, you did something very smart just by showing the top of the head of that decoy to get him to make that commitment to come. A lot of times when you're using a decoy, whether it's attached to a bow or whether your buddy's carrying it out in front of you or, or whatever, however you're doing it, a frontal shot is something that you have to be prepared for. Yep. It's just like calling. Yeah. You have to know <sighs> I get barbecued for this sometimes. Oh, we, we all do. Everybody, everybody, not, every armchair, every armchair bow hunter sure. out there right now is is cringing in their seat right now. What you're about it, to say? <laughs> well, I am a big believer in a frontal shot. Me too. As long as you follow certain parameters, Same. and if you break those parameters, you're going to be in for a heartache. Mm -hmm. But um, and, and those parameters, generally speaking, are on a deer. I want that deer to be inside 15 yards. And if he's further than that, they can move. They can move on time. You, on a mule deer, you might be able to get away with 20 yards. Anything further than that, and I've seen enough video and we've watched enough video of arrows flying at animals, whether it's a mule deer or an elk, dude, they can move before mm -hmm. that arrow gets there. And all they have to do is pivot their their body a little bit either sink and you hit them in the neck or turn sideways a little bit now you hit them in the shoulder there's lots of bad things that can happen but if they're inside that safe range inside 15 yards they don't have the time to move and you've got a relatively large volleyball shaped target right there to <laughs> hit and if you hit them in that volleyball shaped target you will watch them die yeah they they will not make it out of sight before they die on a white tail. I honestly feel like it needs to be 10 yards because those dead gum things are just so they're, they're so twitchy mm -hmm. that they can, they can get out of the way really, really quick. But you know, a longer one like that, it, it's, it, it's a dangerous game. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say is, is if you are using a bow mounted decoy and it does, the, like you said, it turns into a wind sail if that wind is blowing too hard. You reach a point where, you know, you can't have it attached to the bow. If it's windy like that, you can't necessarily have it hard fixed to the bow. 
But what we do in those situations is we slap that thing on the side of the bow, mm -hmm. on the quiver side. And basically your hand that is holding the grip holds the decoy on there by the shooting window. Mm -hmm. And you've got an arrow knot. And now when you're approaching an animal, you're sh you show them the side of your bow. The side, you know, your decoy is being held to the side of the bow with your grip hand. So you show them the side of the bow. Now, the only bad thing about this is you've got to wait for that animal to be distracted or something because eventually you're going to have to point the bow directly toward them. And now the decoy is going to be sideways to them. They're, they're not going to see it anymore. They're going to see you. And when you start to apply pressure to the string and you open your bow hand, you know, on that grip and you're pushing with the, the palm of your hand, the, the decoy falls right off the side of the bow. Mm -hmm. And you and you make shot. We've had to do it on mountain goats and uh, open country mealies, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. My, my solution to that stuff is I've always been a guy that I wait for windy days and I go practice with wind with lots of wind and oh. figure out what my threshold is, you know, and yeah. if I'm, if yeah. I'm usually, usually comfortable shooting out to 80, you know, in the wind, I back it down to 40 or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. That's right. Yeah. You, uh, you definitely yeah. have tighter, much tighter, uh, tighter tolerances than I do on your, uh, on your frontal shot. I actually wrote an article about it. I believe it was last year. Mm -hmm. I have I have very specific philosophy about it. Also, I'm not going to go over it. If you guys want to go to my blog, you can find it. The frontal shot, I think I, and I kind of go into detail of what I do, and it's right. been I've been very successful at it. I I have had some you know mishaps. Usually, it's a miss, complete miss. <laughs> I usually don't. I usually right. don't have. I've only had one that I can think of right now off the top of my head that was a frontal that ended up being a bad shot. Usually if I screw it up, I'm screwing it up really good and I'm just missing altogether. But um Right. For the most part it works out. It's about read it's about reading the animal. It's about reading the animal and it's it's almost never a complete full on full 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 straight shot, you know, straight on shot. There's mm -hmm. always like one little like could be a degree one way or another and you got to really pay attention to that um yeah because that's the way they're going to turn nine times out of ten so and it, you're exactly right a lot depends upon how alert that that animal is right. when you're making that frontal shot exactly. you know what i mean if they're on red alert or not and you know when when i've had the situation using the decoy or even calling elk, you know, when they're when they're coming in and, and you're faced with that full frontal, I just find that more times than not, they are on alert. You know what I mean? They're right. they're looking at you uh, or they're they're expecting to see something right there. And if they are on alert, I, I feel like those you know, on yeah, elk, alert, instance, yeah, alert. You have to really. Reel it in. Yeah, it, you got you to really, really reel it in because you know there's going to be a reaction of some sort. That's right. And yeah. you know, if you're if you're going to attempt it further away, there's a lot of decisions that you've got to make in a very, very short time, mm -hmm. and you better not misread it. Yep. You know. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I, I personally had it go bad 
uh, a few years ago on an elk at 28 yards hmm. where I tried, I, I thought that I could go ahead and do it and it didn't, it didn't work. The animal moved, yep. you know, and it was a, it was a bad result. And it was because I broke one of my own rules and misread the situation, but mm -hmm. you're, you're right. There's different theories about it, but whatever your parameters are, just like I just said, you can't, you can't break those parameters. If you break those parameters, then you're, it, it, it's not going to turn out well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I had, uh, I, I took a frontal shot on my elk this year and he was at 30, I don't know, 32 or something like that. But I knew because he locked up when he came around the corner and he saw me at full draw, I knew he was going to react. So mm -hmm. I aimed again, I read his body and I aimed knowing that he was going to, you know, drop. turn a certain drop and turn a certain way. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Luckily, I read the situation right, and he ran, you know, less than a hundred yards and laid down, and eventually passed away pretty quickly. So, but it, you know, it could go like you said, it could go really wrong if you, you know, that's another experience thing too, though. Like, haven't been in that situation, you know. So the next time you have that situation and you're not comfortable, don't take the shot, but really pay attention that's to right. what what's going on, and and you'll see. You'll see that the, the if you look at their muscles, look at the side that they're leaning on and whatever, guarantee you when he goes to leave, he's going to turn the, the way that, and they almost always go back to the way that they came from in a, in a, in a, not in a general sense, not necessarily on the same deal, but they always, because they do, they just came from there and it was safe. Yeah. So, yeah. but, uh, well, you know, I, I think that decision-making and making those decisions rapidly. There's some people that are really good at it. Mm -hmm. There's some people that when they get into high pressure situations, they're like Iceman. They got ice in their veins. Mm -hmm. And when that pressure gets turned up, their skills become more refined. They're just better. They don't get as excited for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say I am, I am not one of those people. I literally, and I, you know, I've been bow hunting since I was 12 years old. So it's a, it's a long time now. Yeah. And all those years I've tried to refine that, but I honestly feel like it's something that's inherently green ingrained into you sometimes. And I am a, a bow hunter who is very susceptible to buck fever, so mm -hmm. to speak. You know what I mean? And the, the more time I have to think about something and especially in situations like on elk where they're telling you, here I come, here I come, here I come. And there's some guys as that elk gets closer and they start to feel the ground rumbling underneath them when he bugles and they can't see him yet. They just, they go ice cold for me. I'm coming apart at the seams <laughs> and my decision-making processes break down at that point. It's very difficult for me to keep it together. I've really got to focus on that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like just telling myself to just breathe, calm down, let it happen. Don't force it, blah, blah, blah. It sounds to me like you might be the type that is in those situations, gets pretty laser focused in and might not struggle with quite the same level of, of, 
anxiety, I guess, that I do when it when it comes to that time. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um Yeah, I'm definitely one of those guys that gets buck fever after the shot and not before it. Yeah. yeah. Um I I that's that's a my, gift. My my John. mind goes that's a gift. Yeah, it is. I, <laughs> I, my mind goes into autopilot usually. Um yeah. which is which is good. But and you know, we so, all try to train ourselves to do that. But I, I'll tell you right now, it comes easier for some than it does for others. Absolutely. You know? I, I tell you what, the thing that helped me the most was was predator hunting with my bow. Yeah. It's like a drive-by shooting. Everything's just really sped up. and Happening fast. Yeah. And I, I uh, man, I saw such a huge... I Actually, one of the things that made me do it was whitetail hunting the rut back east. I would go back home and you know, go hunt with my family there or go to the Midwest and I'd go during the rut all the time because you want to be, you know, you want to have the best time, whatever. And, you know, deer are running past a freaking stand with a, you know, in front with a doe in front of them. And yeah, you might be able to get them to stop, but it's like, you know, it's so quick. Everything's so quick. And I was like, man, I'm just letting deer go by and I'm not getting shots and it would just bug their shit out of me. So, you know, I was between that and always wanting to have something to bow hunt year round. And I started doing the coyote thing and I was like, wow, man. Then I started noticing like, man, I could shoot deer as long as they stop for that quick second, you know, I have no problem tracking them. And then boom, they stop. They give me that one opportunity and the, the arrow is going off, you know? And, um, I, uh, I just, it improved my, my hunting so, so much. And I, and I think it really helped me, uh, develop the uh, ice in the veins uh i guess the way you put it for i wouldn't say i'm icy but <laughs> i'm i'm right. pretty cool i'm pretty cool i'm not i'm not quite icy but uh well, the the ability to stay calm enough to make sound decisions yep. yep and and not to let that adrenaline push you over the edge to where you're you know you're mm-hmm. you're making bad rash decisions and you stop thinking and I'll, I'll tell you right now, decoying animals from the ground mm-hmm. is a situation where you've got you you've got to try and train yourself for that because when it happens, it's often Quick. it's often close, it's yeah. often fast, and you've got to make really quick decisions. And the the more excited you are the harder it is to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, the first few times it happens to you and, and one of these animals, especially hunting any of them during the rut where, you know, they're moving quickly and they're under 30 yards, under 20 yards, under, you know, at 10 yards sometimes. I, I mean, the level of excitement jumps up exponentially. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you've ever guided elk hunters you know during Mm -hmm. the rut and you get guys that are coming from back east and they've never hunted elk before they've never been in that situation where you know i always say that vocal animals like elk and turkeys it's funny there's so many guys in the west that kind of disregard turkeys but to me they're 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 like a little feathered elk yeah they're fun the (laughs) the beauty of those animals is that they do tell you oftentimes that 
you know, if you're hunting them during that vocal stage, that here I come, here I come, here I come. And the closer that they come in, it's just capable of melting you. Mm-hmm. It builds that anticipation. You know, I, I always tell people elk are the kings of anticipation. Yeah. You might get, uh, when it comes to straight adrenaline, a brown bear at close range, you might have more adrenaline going there, but there, there's a difference between anticipation and fear of being eaten. Yeah. True. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And elk are the ones that are, are, man, you hear them across the canyon and then they're in the bottom and then they're coming up and, and all of a sudden you can feel the ground rumbling underneath you when they're bugling. And when guys first go through that, it, 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 there's an excitement phase. I mean, getting guys to lay off of quartering to you shots on, on elk when they're new to, to mm-hmm. bow hunting elk is it is so hard because they've listened to this thing come and now all of a sudden it's right in front of them and they feel, they get that feeling like I got to shoot him now instead of letting him, you know, come up beside them or something and opening that shoulder up a little bit because you don't want to challenge the front shoulder on an elk. That's right. how wounding loss happens more from quartering to you shots on, on elk than anything else. Absolutely. A, a full frontal is different. Yep. That quartering to you, it's so hard to get guys that are new to it to lay off that shot because they get so excited. Well, the same thing happens to you when you're decoying and, a, and an animal reacts and sees it and comes to you. It is, you've got to be patient. You've got to let it happen instead of forcing it. That's one of my downfalls. I force everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I force everything. I am, that yep. is Johnny the Force. That's me. And, it, it, you know, <laughs> what we were talking, it all comes back to that staying calm oh, enough man. to read the body language. Yeah. You know, yep. because if you, if you read them, you'll know that there are certain times where, yeah, you better act right now. You better get it done right now because this is your, in, in 0.2 seconds, it's, he's going to be gone or you've got to be able to stay calm enough to realize that that animal, even he's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You can, you have time. You have 90% of the time you have more time than you think you do. Right. That's true. You know, it is. It is. And and a lot of the bad things that have happened to me over the years is when, uh, you know, when all of a sudden they're at toward the, as you're getting close to the moment of truth, that animal does something that I wasn't expecting him to do. Mm-hmm. If he, if he reads the script and comes exactly the way that I think that he was going to and everything, bam, I'm, you know, I'm Okay. As soon as he does something different, that's when the panic button gets pushed. That's when it's, you know, w- when I start to feel like, oh, I've got to make it. I've got to do it now. i got to do it now. And that's, that's usually when things get screwed up, you know. And half the time, it, 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 that's one of the great things about hunting on video is that you can go back and you can review those moments. Right. Because there's so many times where your adrenaline is so high, you don't remember 
Oh yeah, it went that one way in your what head. What actually <laughs> happened? Yeah, you know what I mean. Absolutely. Your memory of what happened is not what actually happened when you watch it back. Yep. And the the ability to watch it back and learn those things over time is is a very very valuable tool. For sure, absolutely. I was just thinking one of the things that I wanted to bring up. I know for me, from my personal experience, one of my favorite uses for uh, using a decoy is I I do a a tactic, and again, this is also on my blog. If you guys want to read this um, article I wrote, it's called "Spot and Ambush." It's different from spotting and stalking. Spotting and stalking, you're going directly to the animal. Spotting and ambush, you're you know you're doing the same thing, but you're going to where you think the animal's going to go. So this is not right. for this is not for bedded animals. This is for I particularly use during the run a lot, and I I know that this what I'm going to say right now specifically for antelope has been super effective for me. Oh, dude, it's so funny. Oh, I was thinking antelope as soon as you said what you just said, but keep going. So one of the things that I realized years ago, and especially with antelope, is that if you come over the top of a oh, hill. Hold on. Let me get, dude, you're the only other one that I've heard ever say this. <laughs> this is uh, let me complete your sentence for you. If you come over the top of the hill on them, they hate it. They're gone. If they come over the top of the hill and you're already there, they're going to look at you. It's a completely different right? story. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I feel like that that is the case with with several animals that it's more likely to mule, happen. Mule deer and elk. Not so much with whitetail, but muleys and elk and antelope for sure. Dude, but antelope are the worst. Yes. They they, 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 they go to the curious worst mode about it. Yes. So they, dude, so yeah. it's that's phenomenal that what you're saying because that's an astute observation that I have not heard very many guys make. Yeah, it's it. I, I I noticed it. So like, it works even if you didn't have a decoy. But if you have mm-hmm. a decoy, you get away with so much more. And I can't tell you how many you know antelope. Well, like my, myself, period, personally, I've, I've I have seven antelope and six have been spot stalking. Only one's been on water, uh, all mm-hmm. with a bow. And I think five of those six were a spot and ambush situation with or without a decoy. Some of them was decoy, some no, but it was that same. I saw them chasing, you know, does or whatever, or running down a fence line. And I was like, okay, I got to get in front of this guy and Mm -hmm. get him to come to me somehow, some way, you know, and I do that with running mule deer, I've tried it with running coos deer yet. It's still yet to make that happen. But mm-hmm. I mean, I've killed coos deer with my bow before, but not not in that fashion. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually done it. That's not. Tr- I've done it with whitetail too in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, this video is up on my. I don't know. You really can't tell from the video that we did that, but I explain it. Um, I see this buck chasing does across this and they're heading towards this creek bottom and I know exactly where they're going and I mm-hmm. you know hustle around with my camera guy and we got to this you know um, crossing where they cross the creek a lot and we got there and they all came to us and I I shot the buck and that was 
you know, my first spot stock Midwest whitetail. But those are the things that kind of like, but you, you use a decoy in that situation. You just went from, you know, maybe having 10 seconds to buying, you know, 30, 30 seconds a minute. I mean, who knows? I don't even know, but uh, I never, I never wait long enough to, to let an arrow fly, but, um, it's just, dude, it, it, it's, it's huge. And it's sound advice. Um, especially for antelope, like here in Colorado, our antelope season, archery antelope season is during August and it runs through September 20th. Mm -hmm. So right about the time that they're really starting to get hot, our antelope season stops. Oh, really? Antelope rut is basically like the, the last week of September is probably the, the, the height of the rut. Okay. Antelope. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so for the most part, most people in Colorado, myself included, if we're going to archery hunt antelope, we're usually doing that, uh, you know, right at the beginning of archery antelope season, which is it opens on August 15th. Right. And they they are not ready to go yet. Yep. You know what I mean? They're not in that rut phase yet. Some of the uh, the bucks are still bachelored at that time. Mm-hmm. And that uh, phenomenon that you're talking about is even worse at that time of year. Oh, I bet. Like if, if you come over and man, we've had customers that, you know, they take that antelope out and they're hunting them in that pre-rut phase and they get frustrated and, you know, they'll call on our email and say, what am I doing wrong? And it's like, listen, man, decoying antelope is tough during August. Mm-hmm. The later into September you get, the better the decoying gets. However, if you're going to use decoys during August, you're a lot of times you're dependent upon their curiosity. And one of my favorite tactics to use is to just find, you know, if there's a field or a bottom or, a, or, or whatever, where you see those animals out there just about every day, they're pretty patternable that time of year. If you, I've, I've got an old 3d antelope buck decoy. It was a carry light. They mm-hmm. stopped making it a long time ago. Hopefully somebody will start making a 3D antelope again. M- maybe even we will one of these days. But mm-hmm. um, it, it's a good-looking decoy. Like if I put it out there during the rifle season, it, it's going to get shot. It looks like an <laughs> antelope buck, you know. And if I come over the hill on them, and I don't care whether I've got that decoy or our bow-mounted decoy or a Montana decoy, whatever kind of decoy, you know, you come over the hill on them that time of year, unless you have an antelope that is just in the complete right frame of mind, he, he, you know, a younger buck that thinks the rut's already going or something, or one that gets really curious for some reason, most times they're, they're taken off mm-hmm. when you come over the hill on them. But if you, if you get out there into that field where you see them every day, and you set that 3D buck out, and if you don't have a 3D buck, put a buck, put a, a silhouette like a Montana silhouette or something like that out there, mm-hmm. and then I will go and I'll just sit, you know, 20 yards away from it in some deeper grass or something like that. Same tactic that I use for whitetails, right. using a 3D or a, a separate full body decoy, and then I'll go sit down in the grass and look like a just try to show the the top of the decoy like a bedded animal mm-hmm. those when they come over the hill and they see that and there's already antelope in the field where they are already going that's how i've killed two of my last three bucks 
nice. doing that during August because they will come, they'll come right into it. That's huge. But you have to be there first. Yeah. You, you have to be there first. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the key. Yeah. It's, it's all situational, right? You gotta, gotta read the situation and see if, if, you know, what you're planning yeah. is going to work out. Can't just yep. throw things at, at it and hope that something sticks. I mean, you can, if, if you're just trying to figure out everything out, but when you, when you do that, you know, you got to store that memory in your, uh, you know, mental Rolodex and be able to pull that yeah. back out and say, okay, remember when last time I was faced with this, uh, that didn't yeah. work, but this is what the buck did. This is what happened. And you know, I'm like, what, what will work for that? And that's like super key, I think to, well, to being successful yeah. at, at any kind of hunting. So like we were talking about earlier, that phase before they're in the rut, antelope in August, if you're going to spot and stalk them with a decoy, like a bow mounted decoy, like our, like ours, hunt them just like you would if you didn't have the decoy on. Try yep. to get within, bow, you know, a lot of times getting within bow range of an antelope, you know, depending upon the terrain, isn't the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is drawing your bow back. Yep. I've often said with antelope, if you break the horizon enough to wear that little ball on top of your hat, Mm-hmm. breaks the horizon they have you yep it's like they can it's the truth they can, they can see almost 360 around their head yeah and i mean when you break the you horizon got 40 degrees anything, i think it's 40 degrees behind their head that they can't see yeah and it's just not a lot <laughs> I, I kid you not john i think they can see you there too like they, probably the, the suckers are psychic yeah and like I, I tell people getting within bow range isn't necessarily the if as long as you got a little bit of cover you can get within range with mm-hmm. you know uh longer bow range it's drawing back and and coming up and shooting on animal yeah. that's the hardest part because they catch you exactly. and there's often very little to hide behind if you do it with a bow mounted decoy and you go out there and you you sneak within range and that animal somehow has its head hidden and you're able to draw and he never sees you and you shoot him. Fantastic. But 90% of the time on antelope, they're going to catch you at that point. Right. They're, they're That's what they're masters. But that they're, decoy they're, buys you time. That decoy buys you time. Yep. Dang thing might run five yards or whatever. You might have to rearrange him real quick, but a lot of times you'll get a shot off because they saw that that animal that now they might not be there for long no because like we said if you come over the hill on them you know if they see you from 200 yards out and you're coming over the hill with that decoy a lot of times they run yep you know because that's what they do mm-hmm. that's the if, if you come over the hill on them they're they're they don't like it right. you, they, they come over the hill on you that completely different story yep but anyhow it's interesting because there, I've, like I said, I've I've not heard very many other guys say that before. So that was kudos to you. Likewise to you. I haven't heard anybody say it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, when, as soon as I got all excited, we're the smartest men that. in bow hunting. <laughs> I know, I know. Dude, uh, solving geez. all the problems. Exactly, exactly. Well, awesome, man. I want to thank you for coming on and. Uh, sharing your knowledge with us i should probably have you back on here again we should probably do one on turkey 
oh, yeah, right here yeah. before the season comes on because I'd like to get some turkey tactic stuff. I, I want to try to use a decoy this year. I haven't done a whole lot of turkey hunting over the years just because I live in Arizona and turkey hunting here kind of sucks. And I don't, it's one of those things I kind of have a pact with my wife that I don't travel very much, but I'm uh, during the springtime anyway. So, yeah, I, uh, but I, I'm kind of fell back in love with it. I took my son last year and we got a turkey here in Arizona. And now I'm going to go to take my two girls, got youth tags here. So they're going to try to get turkeys here. And then I'm going to go to California. Uh, oh, right on. With a go hunt with my hunting partner, Charles. And he's, he's got, He's got a lot of private land over there that's got a crap ton of turkeys, so we'll see what we can make happen over there. Well, there it's it's basically turkey reaping with a bow is a very, very, very exciting way to do it. Yeah. Uh, and we can have a, a big, long discussion about that for Sweet. sure. Uh, I, can, I can say that I have a goal, mm-hmm. and with turkeys my goal is to one day shoot a bird to where the broadhead enters the bird before the knot comes off the string that's awesome. call it the the shish kebab shot and the shish kebab i, I pulled, like it i have not pulled it off yet um but i've had a couple of different situations where i was being charged and at about two two and a half yards they suddenly just you know flared for some reason and both of them died Mm-hmm. But uh, that takes the excitement of turkey hunting to a different level. Hell let's yeah. put it that way. I'm in. <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. coming to your house. We're, We're going to go. About it. <laughs> All right, bud. All right. I appreciate you having me, John. Hey, Danny, before we hang up, uh, why don't you give guys a little info on your, uh, your decoys and the gear that you make? Awesome. So uh, the name of our company is Ultimate Predator. Our website is ultimatepredatorgear.com. And uh, it, that's where you'll find all the information that you want on our bow-mounted stalker decoys. We've also got a line of decoys called wind drifter decoys that are 3D realistic uh, motion decoys that move in the wind. Cool. Um, but yeah, you can find all the information on us there, or visit us on find us on Instagram or Facebook, UltimatePredatorGear.com. Sweet. Thanks a lot, buddy. Appreciate it. All right, man. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much and we'll catch you on the next show.